you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Today's expert from the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Paul Adamson. Dr. Adamson, welcome back to AirTalk. Good morning. Good morning, Larry. So you, uh, you were actually on duty at the hospital at UCLA Medical Center before the holidays at year's end. And then this past weekend, you were also um, dealing with COVID patients. Just share with us what you're seeing at the hospital. Sure. Yeah. So I was on the, the COVID infectious disease service, as you mentioned, um, over the winter holidays, um, kind of when we were starting to see that initial swell of COVID cases. Um, and then again over the weekend, and we are very much kind of amidst the wave of COVID patients. Um, you know, we've seen cases increase dramatically across the county and the country, um, and we sort of see it everywhere in the hospital, from the emergency rooms to the regular hospital beds to the ICUs. Um, and so it is, COVID is very much everywhere in, in, in the health system right now. Um, but I think one thing, I know it's been discussed here before, and I wanted to make sure your listeners know that you know, a lot of the people we're seeing in the hospital, everyone I saw with severe COVID that was in the hospital, um, unfortunately, was unvaccinated. And so we're not really seeing people who are vaccinated coming into the hospital um, with very severe COVID. And when those do, cases do usually happen, it's, you know, much often, much more often in the immune compromised or elderly um, folks where we're seeing that. Um, so just wanted to make sure people, you know, kind of I, I don't want, want to make sure it's not lost in the numbers that, um people who are vaccinated are much less likely to, to be hospitalized with COVID. One of the things that um, I think is, is difficult, we look at these numbers and see currently across the country, the most people in the hospital with COVID that we've seen since the start of the pandemic, uh, that's approaching 150,000, I believe. Um, but, you know, many of those people came to the hospital for something else and then tested positive for COVID-19. And and that seems much different than earlier in the pandemic when people were going to the hospital with you know very serious symptoms, breathing problems associated with COVID. So can you talk to that difference? Because when people see these numbers, they get very concerned. But um, this is different, it seems. Yeah, I think the, well, I think there's two things um, about that. Um, so the numbers that we're seeing of hospitalizations are up, and as you mentioned, they're sort of the highest levels of hospitalizations we've seen at any course during this pandemic. And I think what makes that you know challenging in and of itself is that this is also coming in the background of, of massive staff shortages 
um, throughout hospital systems across the country as, you know, the Omicron variant is, is hitting um, healthcare workers and staff um, the same as it is hitting the communities, and that's leading to these um, shortages. So that makes it harder to, to deal with those high numbers. And then the other thing, like you mentioned, you know, some people are coming to the hospital, you know, with COVID and, and, and um, you know, pneumonia from COVID or, or um, uh, effects from COVID. Some people are coming to the hospital for something different and are found to have COVID. Um, and it's a little bit hard to distinguish those entirely. There are certainly some people who come in and are incidentally found to have COVID. I would say that that's still a relative minority, though it is still it's a higher level than it was previously. I saw data from Los Angeles County. They estimate about half the people are hospitalized uh, with COVID rather than from COVID. And, I, you know, I'm not quite sure exactly how those numbers um, are decided. I know we are seeing some people who, are, who have COVID um, but aren't you know, necessarily sick from COVID. But at some point, the distinction doesn't matter too much because, you know, there's still a lot of hospital resources that go into caring for somebody with COVID. They have to be on, you know, in an isolation room. You know, we have to use all of the PPE before we go in to see them. You know, so it does put a lot of challenges on the health system, having people in the hospital with COVID, even if they're not necessarily sick from COVID itself. Sure. Uh, Dr. Adamson, also wanted to ask you about the staffing, because as you mentioned, so many hospital personnel have tested positive for COVID or had symptoms, have not been able to work as a result of that. So you're getting hit with a surge in patients at the same time staffing has taken a hit. But at least those people are going to be coming back around a week or so after they're out, maybe two weeks. But um, what about people who've just, you know, retired? One of the things we've heard some of our medical experts is, you know, there some nurses, for example, getting kind of close to retirement age, decided rather than meeting the mandate for vaccination to just decide to leave the profession. Plus, they're burned out. Those are people you're not necessarily going to get back. And do you have any sense how big of a hit UCLA Medical Center has taken with that kind of loss? You know, I. It's, it's a good question. It's been brought up before. I'm not quite sure how uh, much of a hit that is um, for the UCLA health system. But my suspicion is that most people, you know, more than 99% of um, certainly of, of physicians and um, a large you know, majority of, of people um, were, you know, were receiving of the vaccines. And I don't think the vaccine mandate is actually leading to a lot of people leaving the, um, the health system. I do think that, you know, it's been a really challenging two years um, um, you know, through the health system. And I do think that's led to a lot of healthcare worker burnout. Um, and maybe people were closer to retirement and they decided to retire earlier than they would have normally done. Um, you know, so it, it's certainly a challenge for healthcare workers out there. And, you know, but I, but I do think that <clears throat> this is sort of what we're, we're here for. And I'm, I'm still very much inspired, you know, going to work over the weekend. I'm very much inspired by all the hardworking people kind of that I work with, throughout the hospital system from, you know, anything from the environmental staff and food services to the MAs, respiratory therapists, nurses, you know, it's been a tough years for everyone out there. And, and, you know, these people are still showing up and working hard and making sure we're able to care for um, as many patients as we possibly can. So very inspiring. It's just, it is kind of a reminder for the community that, you know, there's a lot of strain on the healthcare system and anything that we can do in the community to reduce the spread and reduce the pressure on the hospital system would be very much appreciated. 
We're talking with Dr. Paul Adamson, who's a professor at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, infectious disease physician. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. We also ask, please uh, don't direct questions to us that are highly specific to your medical condition that have a lot of moving parts uh, to it. Better to ask questions that are going to be relevant to a wider swath of the audience than would be highly specific to you. That would be a good question to ask your health care provider instead of Dr. Adamson. 866-893-KPECC. Dr. Adamson, we've been getting a lot of questions about testing. The at-home quick antigen tests versus the PCR tests. Uh, I know that you've been hearing confusion on the part of patients who've been asking you and your colleagues at UCLA about this. So, you know, let's let's quickly go through this. Uh, what does the antigen test do and what are its advantages versus PCR? Sure. Yeah, no, there, I know there's a lot of confusion out there. Um, and hopefully we can make this a bit more clear. So I think the, the rapid antigen test um, is really sort of, it's a test that is available for you to take at home, um, and you can have results in 15 to 30 minutes. Um, the, the benefit of the test is to, um, I think it, where it's most helpful is trying to answer the question, am I infectious right now? Which, you know, as we know, there's a lot of transmission that happens through the community where people didn't know they had an infection. And so it's helpful in determining, am I infectious right now? Um, and you can change your behaviors, avoid public gatherings. You can avoid um, going and seeing, you know, elderly patients or, or elderly family members and avoid giving them COVID. So the tests detect high viral loads, and those are associated with infectiousness. Um, and so they're a little bit more useful in helping people determine if they're infectious. So a positive test tells you that you, you are infectious and you should continue isolation. A negative test tells you, you're well, you're less likely to be infectious at the time you took the test, but it doesn't necessarily tell you that you don't have COVID. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, if people, you know, it sort of depends on the setting in which people are using them. <clears throat> Excuse me. If they are um, exposed to someone with COVID or have symptoms that could be COVID, um, a test taken at that time, a negative test might tell you that you're not infectious right now, but it doesn't tell you necessarily that you don't have COVID. And in that setting, a PCR test is actually more helpful for establishing a diagnosis of COVID because it can detect far fewer particles of the virus. So the, the antigen test is not as useful in that setting if it's negative. If it's positive, you can be sure in that setting that you do have COVID and that you are infectious and you should take appropriate precautions. We have a listener, Elizabeth, in Highland Park, uh, said that her ex-husband had COVID around December 24th, stopped having symptoms by the new year, but he's still testing positive on the at-home antigen tests. And so she's wondering, well, you know, if it's showing up on that, how do we determine when it's safe for him to exit quarantine? Again, he goes back to symptoms showing around the 24th, and he's symptom-free now, but still testing positive on the antigen tests. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. We, we know that, I think this has also led to some confusion. Initially, you know, I guess at some point last year, um, you know, most of the antigen tests were being used when people were symptomatic. And it was 
a useful test in that sense to tell you if you had COVID, if you had symptoms of COVID. But what we're learning both with the Omicron variant as well as um, given that many people are vaccinated or have some prior immunity, that by the time symptoms start, symptoms are actually starting much earlier in the course of the disease. And that's primarily if you're immunized or vaccinated, it's primarily your body's response to the virus that's leading to the symptoms. Whereas previously, before people had immunity, the virus was replicating at very high levels causing tissue damage, which was leading to symptoms. So when you had symptoms, you had a very high viral load. But now we're seeing that symptoms start earlier and the viral load peaks maybe a little bit later than it did previously, which maybe is leading to these antigen tests staying positive a little bit later in the course as compared to symptoms um, and maybe staying positive for a bit longer. Now, the, the rate of false positives for these tests is actually quite low. Um, so if he's still positive on an antigen test, I would be concerned that he's still infectious. Even though, I mean, we're talking about, what, two and a half weeks later? Yeah, that does seem like a, a, a longer course. Um, the thing that they could try is to do a different um, company's um, test or a different lot of the test. And it, it might be that that's a false positive test, and they could try a different antigen test. If that test is also positive, then I would still say that, that they are infectious. And, you know, it's a good reminder that these, you know, five, 10, 14-day periods that we've been used to hearing throughout the pandemic are really sort of percentages that, you know, you know, 90 percent of people are not transmitting at 10 days, for example. Um, but there are still, you know, a small portion, you know, 5, 10 percent that can be transmitting for longer than that, although it gets, you know, far fewer the longer we get from uh, the initial infection. Uh, one of our KPCC colleagues, we're so glad to have back with us after being out with uh, COVID. And, you know, one of the questions that this raises for anybody in that situation is, you know, how much immunity do you have after having a bout of COVID? Um, because you, you, we think of that being rather robust protection, but how long does it last? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's it's a good question. I think, you know, we, what we saw with the prior um, uh, variants is that, you know, people who get an infection, um, immunity lasts for a period of time. We think it's probably, you know, somewhere on the order of at least two or three months um, where they're much less likely to get a reinfection um, during that time period. Um, and I would say that people who are vaccinated or fully vaccinated who have um, who then get an infection have much higher levels of immunity um, than people who either were just vaccinated or had an infection. So they're kind of, you know, each each exposure to this virus um, gives your body's immune system sort of a stimulus and leads to more immunity, which for, will further protect you in the future. Uh, and then just to be clear, obviously, we're not advocating for people to go out and get infected. But, the, you know, the only silver lining of an infection is that your immunity after an infection will be um, better. It's just you know, yeah. better to have an infection after you've been vaccinated rather to have an infection with no immunity whatsoever. One of the, that's really devastating. One of the questions that we've gotten, though, from people in that circumstance who've gotten COVID after being vaccinated is, should they then wait longer to get a booster shot and rely, you know, so they don't get laid low by the booster coming out of an infection? 
Um, or should they get the booster sooner rather than later? What What would you do in that circumstance? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good question. It's sort of hard to give a blanket recommendation on that. But I do think, you know, if you had two doses of, of, of vaccine and then you, you know, got COVID and, you know, were a little bit sick um, but got better, then, you know, I would say, you know, a booster is probably not as important to kind of rush out and do. But, you know, a booster a month or two after the um, infection would probably still lead to some higher level of immunity. But again, probably doesn't, um, you know, probably not something as necessary as if, you know, if you didn't have an infection. And and would the extent of the infection, how in other words, how sick you were, is that a decent proxy for the degree of protection offered? Yeah, these, these are all great questions. I think we're still kind of rapidly trying to figure this out. We know that people who have uh, severe infections um, and recover have um, very high levels of immunity. And you can imagine your body kind of uh, uh, kind of had this big immune response to help fight the infection and, and help get you better. And so that leads to sort of longer immunity. And that's clear. And then what's also clear is people who have just mild infections, so we know that people who have the virus kind of isolated to the you know, upper respiratory tract, the nose, the sinuses, the throat, and they don't ever get lower respiratory tract infections like a pneumonia, they have some immunity too. It just doesn't seem like it's probably quite as robust as someone who had a severe infection. So those two things are clear. But what we don't know is kind of in the middle. People who had you know, an infection that laid them up and they got pretty sick, but they didn't go to the hospital, you know, th- those are kind of, that's the area where we don't quite know yet. So this Virus causes a wide range of clinical syndromes and a wide range of immune responses in individuals, and it's really sort of hard to predict. But we know there is some immunity. We just don't know how exactly how strong it is for each person. Rachel in Granada Hills, good to have you with us on AirTalk. Hi. um, I have a daughter who is 15 years old. She has been vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. I have her scheduled to get her booster this Friday, And I have heard some uh, rumors, I guess, (laughs) information that perhaps there would be a concern for younger people, in particular females, on getting the booster. I just wanted to ask if there is anything I should be concerned about. All right, Rachel. Dr. Adamson. Hey, Rachel. Thank you for that question. Um, No, I I think there has been... um, you know, some information or misinformation out there about um, uh, teens, about getting, um, you know, COVID vaccines and boosters. Um, but really, the, the data is quite good and the, um, the safety of the vaccines is, is, is quite good, especially for this um, age group. So I would not have any concerns about getting um, a, a booster for your daughter. Um, you know, I think what some people had brought up was that the, the chance of um, developing um, symptoms of like a myocarditis or a pericarditis, meaning inflammation of the heart or the tissue around the heart, um, was slightly higher um, among uh, people getting the vaccine in this age group. But, um, you know, the risk of that is, is is actually quite low from the vaccine. And and again, everything we do is in balance of the benefits and the risks. And, you know, the risks of having myocarditis or pericarditis in this age group due to viral infections such as covid is actually also much higher. And so, you know, on balance, the, the benefits of getting a vaccine in this age group um, certainly outweigh the, the risks associated with that. Well, and, and the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine 
Um, that's higher risk in boys than girls, isn't it? It is. It is. We see that also with other viral infections as well, uh, that the uh, boys in this age group tend to have higher rates of um, infl- like myocarditis or pericarditis um, due to viral infections kind of at baseline. Um, and so we saw that also spill over a little bit into the um, vaccine groups. But again, it's about weighing risks and, and, and benefits. And in my mind, and you know, according to all the CDC data and the FDA um, data reviews, um, the benefits um, far outweigh the risks. All right. Uh, let's see. Evan in Cypress Park says uh, L.A. County Director of Public Health Barbara Ferrer told our Nick Roman on All Things Considered yesterday that 45 percent of people in L.A. County hospitals are there for non-COVID reasons, but then test positive uh, while they're there. Uh, we were talking about those those figures because you were saying you hadn't really seen that percentage at uh, you know at UCLA Medical Center where you're working. But Evan's question is really about you know do do you feel like what we're seeing is is COVID nineteen becoming endemic? That is just so widespread, so many people have it at this point that that it is uh, becoming endemic. Yeah, no, I, I think he's exactly right. We, this is very much endemic, um, and um, I think you know there was, you know, there's been a lot of um, talk recently about you know getting used to having to live with COVID. That this is something we're gonna you know be living with for a few years. And I think, you know, I think that's true. Um, and I also think it's it doesn't necessarily. I think when people we have all this collective trauma around um, COVID. And I don't think that means we're going to be going back to lockdowns or, you know, cases are going to be as high as they are right now, kind of like, you know, throughout time. Um, but I do think the virus is not necessarily going away. It's not going to um, I don't think we're going to be rid of it anytime soon. Um, so we do have to transition to like living with COVID. And I think, you know, the mainstays of doing that are going to be to get people vaccinated against COVID so that when we even have infections, which we anticipate having infections, we can reduce the severity of those infections so we can put less strain on healthcare um, resources. Um, and so I do think that is something that we're going to have to get used to over the next um, several years. You know, the World Health Organization has said that Omicron may infect half of Europeans within the next several weeks, which is you know rather stark um, a projection by the World Health Organization. Um, and if, you know, if that happens here, is there a silver lining to that Does, with with um, the limited time immunity that that presents and the fact that Omicron, though people can, of course, be seriously ill and have died from that variant, um, that it is much less lethal, it appears, than Delta? Yeah, I, I saw that report from about um, 50% of Europe, and it does seem quite stark. And, you know, we're, we're seeing these really rapid, rapid rise of cases throughout California and Los Angeles, which just reflects the really high levels of community transmission. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing numbers that we were a lot higher than they were last year, but there are things that are different. Um, you know, we have a lot of um, better tools at our disposal. The main one are vaccines. They've helped tremendously. We're seeing far fewer of those cases coming into the hospital, having severe disease, and that's primarily due to vaccines. Um, And, you know, I don't want to say that Omicron's causing mild um, symptoms or or no disease, because it very much is, especially for people who are unvaccinated. Um, It's still causing people to go on ventilators and causing death. 
Um, it's just it's hard to predict how this is going to play out. But I guess one silver lining of having you know this uh, all the cases go up and infection rates um, go up is that once we get through this, we'll probably have more immunity um, as a community than we did beforehand. Um, but again, that's not to say I want people yeah. to go out and get infected. It's right. Vaccinations are protecting people from severe disease, and if they get infected and they recover, they'll will have more immunity. But there's just so much community transmission happening right now that it's really um, you know quite unsettled. It's kind of mind-boggling how much is out there right now. Um, Evan, thank you for that excellent uh, question. Adrian in Los Angeles says, "I'm a wrestling coach in the LA Unified School District. On Sunday, the district announced a pause on all competitions and a pause on all indoor practices for high school athletes throughout this week. LAUSD student athletes and staff are required to be fully vaccinated. Any recommendation to allay parent fears of spread?" And will a pause make a significant difference in that spread? I know that this, I feel like we're all in such a tough position right now where we were, you know, getting slowly getting things back to normal and then Omicron hit and, and it's kind of set us back a bit. Um, you know, I do think that the, you know, public health department um, and the school systems are doing their best to weigh the risks and the benefits of, um, you know, doing these different things. Like we've talked about before, there's just so much Omicron out in the community right now that um, I think it's kind of on all of us to do whatever we can to try to break the chains of transmission and try to curtail the spread. That's vaccination. It's masking. It's using really high-quality masks when you're indoors um, and around others. Um, It's avoiding crowded indoor settings, and it's through testing. But I think, you know, in this setting um, related to the question about, um, you know, in schools and, and in wrestling, I think... You know, those might be higher transmission activities and, um, you know, doing a pause while there's just so much virus in the community um, can, I think, be helpful for curtailing the spread. And final question comes. um, uh, Where was I? I just lost his question. It was a very good one. Oh, Stephen LaCanata. He tweeted the question at AirTalk. How much of the error rate from home test kits, false negatives in particular, is from poor nasal swapping? Or is the procedure so robust it doesn't matter how carefully one swaps? Oh, that's an excellent question. And I actually, it was something I wanted to bring up earlier because I, I wanted to say that, you know, no test is perfect. There are false positives, there's false negatives with any test that we do. These tests work really well, but it's really important to understand the limitations of the test you're doing. And the test, the home test, but any test, is only as good as a specimen that is collected. So it's really important to ensure good and proper um, specimen collection. And so it's important that people who are doing home tests read the instructions in their entirety and make sure they're doing a really, really good sample collection so that you can be sure that the results you're getting um, is accurate. Thank you so much, Dr. Adamson. I really appreciate it. Um, So many good questions from our listeners, as is the case every day. I I just want to express my appreciation to AirTalk listeners for just bringing such wonderful queries to our physician experts. Dr. Adamson, we wish you and your colleagues at UCLA Geffen School of Medicine all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Larry. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A., 
if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.